Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Here with you again. How are you, Ben? I'm doing great, John. How are you? I'm doing good. So today on the show, we want to dive into evidence that demands a verdict, which is Josh McDowell's highly influential book um, where he defends uh, Christianity. He claims to provide evidence of the historical truth of Christianity. This book is extremely influential in uh, the modern evangelical Christian world. Um, you'll often hear this book referenced or cited. We just did a couple episodes on uh, dissecting the interview between Joe Rogan and Adam Curry. And Adam Curry mentions this book several times throughout the interview. But Christians do this all the time. It's a very common go-to for them when someone is questioning them or trying to understand the reasons uh, for their faith. So we thought it would be a good idea to kind of go through the arguments in that book and his, his other book, which is called More Than a Carpenter, and break down uh, what he thinks are his best arguments. Yeah, so um, we're going to play some clips of Josh McDowell talking about his arguments, but just as a little bit of a background, um, he may even tell a little bit of his story in, uh, in these clips, but he is an apologist who's been around since the early 70s or mid to early 70s. Extremely popular book. Um, on his website, they talk about his ministry impact worldwide. Um, his first book, More Than a Carpenter, uh, sold over 27 million copies, um, or that, that's many copies have been distributed. Um, 32,000 talks he's given in 193 countries. Um, he's written or co-authored 153 books. And the languages um, that his books have been translated into 128 languages. So um, very widely used, as John said, extremely popular. Um, and it's arguments that ha apologists have in uh, relied on or relied on similar arguments for now uh, 40, 50 years. Yeah, and the book is... Um it's a long book. It's over 800 pages. If you buy it now, it's called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict because in the 90s, um, he republished it and um, made some additions. Um, so that's really what we're going to talk about. But since the book is so long and in-depth, it would take us like 24 episodes to break down everything in it. What we thought we would do is listen to a talk that he gives where he um, is presenting um, the best evidence from the book 
And um, it also might be easier for us here to discuss it so we can listen to what he says and then go through it and talk about it afterwards. So I should say this book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, is um, hugely influential. Um, Growing up in the Christian church, um, I think everyone had this book, and it was something that was referred to constantly. Yeah, I can remember it being the go-to for youth pastors to tell people it was like, yeah, it was like required reading almost, um, as far as building um, up your skills as an apologist. Yeah, and one of the things that we're going to talk about is how, is this book actually effective for skeptics, as it claims? It claims to be speaking to atheists and skeptics that doubt the evidence for uh, for the New Testament. But um, I think what, what we'll show is that this is really much more effective for uh, strengthening the faith of people who already believe or offering some kind of an anchor for uh, Christians that already believe but just want something to go to or want something to uh, recommend to somebody else so that they don't actually have to uh, delve into the questions themselves. But without further ado, let's hear what Josh himself has to say. Yeah, All right, so let's just start and uh, we'll hear what he has to say. I have my phone muted, but I'm laughing too. It's like so. <laughs> but the it's music like, at the end is the best. Especially if you watch, you see like people like buying tickets. Like it's a. I know. A it's like at a matinee. It's yeah. The fucking beginning <laughs> of uh, <laughs> like Cisco and Ebert. Right. <laughs> or like the weekly movie. I have my phone muted, but I'm laughing too. It's like night on the weekly movie. The yeah, but the music at the end is the best. Especially and if you then, watch, you see like people like buying tickets. Like it's a, I know. Like yeah. a matinee. It's yeah. the fucking beginning of uh, <laughs> like Cisco and Ebert. Right. Or like, or like the weekly movie when they used to do those. <laughs> Tonight on the weekly music. The Exorcist. Kind of the background for what I share then, here was when I was a student in university, I ran into some professors and students whose lives were really different. And like I remember one day I was sitting in the dormitory with them. And I asked him the question, I said, what makes like your life so said, differently? Um, and this one young lady looked at me and just said, Jesus let me, let me Christ. Say one more thing. And I just laughed. I thought that was a joke. And I said, don't give me that garbage. I'm fed up with religion, the church, the Bible, everything. And then I couldn't forget that these professors and students right there challenged me as a pre-law student, now get this, to intellectually, to use my mind to examine the claims of Christ as a son of God, and the Bible is a word of God. Well, I thought that was a joke, because I really thought that most Christians had two brains. One was lost, and the other was out looking for it. I really believed that. But uh, they kept kind of irritating me with it all the time. And I remember I was at a water fountain, one of the professors said to me, what's the matter, young man? Aren't you willing to be intellectually honest? That was it. I said, okay, I'll accept your challenge. But I didn't do it to prove anything. I did it to refute them. And the whole background of my first book, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, was to write a book against Christianity. I figured any fool could do that. So just a couple real quick comments. Um, I don't know what university Josh McDowell was um, was in when this happened, but I know he went to Kellogg Community College. Um, and then Biola University, which is a non-denominational evangelical Christian college, and then Wheaton College, which is a evangelical Christian college. So it just seems... Um, yeah, it seems a little dubious, right? How did he end up at these colleges being so frustrated with religion? 
Um, it just seemed like a little bit strange to me. Um, the other thing I just wanted to mention um, that's important to remember about his arguments is that he's coming from this from an evidentiary perspective. He actually thinks that um, you can prove that the Bible is reliable through evidence. Now, there's a whole other wing of Christian apologetics that's called presuppositionalism um, that I'm sure we'll talk about another time. Um, but he's disavowing any presuppositional uh, approach and saying that you can look at the evidence objectively and the evidence will tell you that Christianity is reliable. So I think like as he's making his claims, we should just be keeping that in mind and making sure that he's being intellectually honest with those claims. Yeah. As an evidentialist, I find it much easier to debate or to like take apart the evidence and look at what he's saying. Arguing with the presuppositionalist is an entire different ball of wax. Uh, that's that's why I'm attracted uh, to this because it's like oh okay he's going to make claims and then we can and then we can dive in and see what they say and um, yeah and as far as his backstory I mean it makes a it makes for a much better story for him and when he gives the speech he's been giving this same speech for you know 50 years um, and uh, yeah I'm a little bit dubious with it like I, I question it a little bit because like Ben said he. Uh, he went to a community college and then two Christian schools after that, and um, and and he was a minister. He became an evangelist, and then he, and then he wrote the book. The book came out like you know well into his minister into his ministry. So, um, it yeah, it makes a much better story that like I set out to disprove the Bible, and I went around the world, and then what happened? It changed my mind, and I started to believe the Bible, but. Um, I'm very skeptical if that's actually what happened. I've read other people that also are skeptical. If you're familiar at all with another book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, there's all kinds of controversy for the exact same reason. Um, people questioning um, you know, Lee Strobel's actual history that goes against uh, this narrative that he's trying to sell. Yeah, I didn't want to get bogged down, but I just wanted to keep those uh, distinctions in everyone's mind. Yeah, but I mean, it really is the key to um, his entire point here is that, you know, the, it's, what, it's the evidence that persuaded him um, and, uh, and nothing else. It's not like he was a Christian that set out to prove the Bible. It's that he was a non-believer that set out to, debu to debunk it. And I just don't think that's true. Travel throughout the United States, England, the Middle East, gathering the evidence to write the book. And I had a problem. When I returned to the university... Intellectually, I became convinced. Can you stop it for one second? So, first of all, the Middle East, okay. The United States and England, why would you travel through the United States and England if you're trying to discover the truth of the Bible? Why wouldn't you go? I mean, the United States, maybe. I, I don't know England. I mean, you would go to Germany. That's where the best Bible scholars are. They're either in Germany or the United States. So, I don't know. That just, again, seems a little strange. True. I mean, I guess this was in an age before the internet. So I guess what he, when he talks about traveling around the world, it makes it seem like he's Indiana Jones on, on some sort of a, you know, a mission for evidence. Uh, I mean, he could pick up the phone and call people and you're right. He's not, he's not going to Israel and, and digging up uh, artifacts. Um, so I'm not really sure what you're uh, gaining by traveling around the world in the way he's suggesting. But again, it sounds great to his story. He's on this, you know, major journalistic mission here. Come to the exact opposite conclusion of what I set out to prove. And one of the areas that I really knew that if I could refute it, I had my case won. 
And I could look those Christian professors and students right in the eyes and put them down with a clear conscience. And that's when it came to the Bible. I really thought this was a book written years after the time of Christ, way into the second century, and what people didn't like, they took out. What they did like, they added to it. And it looked like a mess put together by a committee. And I figured an intelligent, rational approach to it would totally satisfy my mind and refute it. Was I ever surprised? And what I'd like to do is, in our time together, is just share with you some of the things that I found as an individual as I set out to write my book against the scriptures, and I ended up not only acknowledging the scriptures as what I believe now is God's word, but I also ended up becoming a Christian against everything that I believed. Okay, so what was that point that he made, like, very quickly? We could probably go on for multiple episodes just on that one point about about the, the perception he had about the Bible and then how he changed his mind on that. So I think that part of what happens... And I think that this is another thing that we should pay attention to as he lays out his evidence is, um, okay, so he'll, he'll make a claim of evidence. Um, let's say that that claim of evidence is true and then make some sort of a claim about what that evidence proves. And I think that that's a different question. Like, so um, the first question we have to ask is he's going to offer evidence. Is the evidence that he's offering even real evidence? And then I think the second question is, if it's real evidence, what does it actually prove? Um, and I think what he does a lot of times, and I think like the way that he's framing these questions about scripture, it was changed over time. It was put together by committee. Um, people took out things they didn't like. Well, but in a sense, it was put together by committee. Um, it wasn't necessarily people just taking out and putting in what they wanted, but in a sense, like, that did happen. But I think that his claims about the Bible are, are interesting, that, um, you know, he thought that he could dismantle it because um, it was something that was put together, written a long time after um, the life of Jesus, um, not by eyewitnesses, um, put together by committee, changed by people over time. Um, so those are the things that were his assumptions and that he's going to disprove. Ben, there, we're going to, um, Josh McDowell here is going to get into more details about uh, his specific claims about the Bible. But um, just as an overview, I thought maybe we could discuss it a little bit because um, he talks about what his original uh, perception was about the Bible and then how that changed. And his original perception was what? Well, it was... He, it was written um, a long time after the events it purports to uh, describe. It had been uh, changed and altered and ultimately was not reliable. Um, so we can, as this goes on, as this progresses, we're going to break down each of those. But I think that overall, the, I think one problem I have right away is um, just because he had uh, even if you accept his arguments, just because he had an incorrect perception of the history of the Bible, that doesn't mean that um, it validates historically the Bible. I think that's a very good point. I mean, he's his standard, he sets up a standard for rejecting the Bible that is, it's like, if it can pass this test, then I know that Christianity is reliable. And that was just his standard. Right. That It wasn't... <laughs> It wasn't um, historians necessarily making those claims, although they do make some of those claims, and we'll get into that. But, um, right, he's, he's arguing against himself. He's saying, like, 
I was wrong about something, therefore the Bible is true. If he can, if he can prove that the Bible, for instance, was written very closely, as he says, very closely to the events they describe, that doesn't mean the Bible is true. Um, yeah. It just means that he was wrong with his original assumption. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, you're just setting up an arbitrary standard. Um, right. And you're right. You having a false belief about something and having that false belief disconfirmed doesn't make your um, the original assumption that you had wrong. Right. Ultimately, it's a straw man argument. Yeah. He's, he's, he's making... Um, he's arguing against something that is not even really claimed by um, historians, and but but actually some of it is, and we'll get into that as we move. Yeah, on. I mean that's like that's what I think the whole thing is. I mean he's working with the assumptions of a person that's not a scholar, just a, the the a normal person that has assumptions about the Bible, and he's like, if I can measure up to this normal assumptions about the Bible, if I can best these normal arguments that people make against the Bible, then that proves the Bible's true. But that's not what proves the Bible is true. Right. Um, that just means that normal people don't know really very much about the Bible. Right. And, and to his point, um, he would say, I'm assuming that, well, it, it actually is um, a major objection that a lot of people that don't know better have against the Bible. Uh, like, uh, for instance, a lot of people will assume that uh, the New Testament was written you know, thousands of years after uh, the time of Jesus. And, and people that, you know, study this know that that's not the case. So that's true. Like a lot of people will um, reject the Bible based on um, false reasoning or, or faulty history. Um, but that, again, that doesn't in any way um, go to prove that the Bible is true. Um, but let's move on. So now he has a... Um, kind of a silent movie type text up on the screen and it says do you think the bible we have today is the same bible that was first written and he's going to ask people on the street so i'll just jump in and um kind of describe what was there because the audio quality is not great he's interviewing people on the street or um or somebody's interviewing people on the street asking them if the Bible that we have today is the same Bible that was originally written. And most of the answers are people saying, no, they think it was changed over time, um, like a game of telephone. Uh, so many years has gone by and people have like inserted their own opinions in it. Like That's basically what most people said um, off the top of their head when being interviewed on the street. So I just want to say like how dishonest this framing is. Um, he's trying to make a video to be convincing with evidence, and he's literally arguing with people on the street. Like it, it's not a fair. It, like again, it's so apologetic. The attempt is not really to present a convincing case by evidence. Yeah, and this is a trick that apologists have been using for a long time. Kirk Cameron, the way of the master, comes to mind. I mean, you can you can. First of all, the easiest thing to make whatever narrative you want is street interviews, because you can interview a hundred people, find exact like find the people that say exactly what you're looking for, and then publish it. But yeah, this is exactly why scholars and historians um, don't do their work by interviewing people on the street, because what people on the street know or don't know is totally irrelevant to the historical claims that he's he's making. And what then I also just want to say like. The, ir the irony is going to be, for me, that I think that the people on the street actually are closer to the truth than Josh McDowell. That's the other thing I was going to say. Um, and we'll, we'll get into what Josh McDowell has to say about it. But 
when he taught, I was kind of laughing to myself when these, these people were saying it's kind of like a game of telephone. I'm like, wow, that sounds a lot like Bruce Metzger or uh, Bart Ehrman, like New Testament scholars that are, you know, far more knowledgeable than Josh McDowell is. Um, because actually that's a really good way to describe exactly how the New Testament came to be. And we can see that in the manuscript evidence. You can see copies of books that have uh, phrases different than another copy. And what do you know? We have no access to almost the first two centuries of manuscripts. And the most errors that you find are in the earliest manuscripts, which means just statistically speaking alone, there was probably massive changes that were going on in the first two centuries of Christianity. So yeah, Ben, that's a good point. Ironically, these people on the street are right. Yeah, they don't know the facts behind their opinions, but their opinions are actually closer to the truth. And once we examine the facts, you'll see how that how that actually flushes out. I mean, they may be talking about a different amount of time, or they may be thinking it was Constantine changing the scripture. Um which is sort of like the the belief in the zeitgeist. But, you know, we'll talk about, like, they're not wrong. There were oral traditions that that's how Christianity was passed around for the first 40 years or 30 years after Jesus died. It was oral tradition. So oral tradition is a game of, phone, of telephone. Um, it's literally how it goes, and people were embellishing stories. And, and you don't even have to look at the text themselves. All you have to do is look at the New Testament, and we see that Mark tells the story. By the time Matthew and Luke tell it, there's changes to the story. By the time John is telling um, Jesus' life, the story is completely changed. The chronology has changed. Um, there were different stories floating around um, about these events. There were different sources that were used in the gospel. So we'll get into all this stuff, but like, I just wanted to say, like, these people's assumptions— that he's going to ridicule as sort of being the same ignorance that he used to think are not so far from the actual truth. Yeah, and um, I, I don't want to be redundant here because Josh is going to get into it in um, himself, and we're probably going to want to say basically the same things again. But uh, let's move on and hear what he has to say here. When everybody came to believe the earth was round, had it always been round? Well, yes. But then wait a minute. Truth didn't change. Your perspective of truth changed. The truth remained the same, the earth was round. Our perspective changed. And then I'll throw this out. What caused people to change their perspective from the earth being flat to the earth being round? And it's interesting, in almost every single focus group of university or high school students, they'll say something like this. Or the evidence or testimony, uh, um, experience. I say, that's right. Testimony experience is when people would leave in the ships, the mothers, the wives, the children, the brothers, sisters, a family would go by, go down to say goodbye to them. Why? They truly believed that they would fall off the end of the earth and they would never see their husband or their father okay. or their kids. Okay. Can we just pause it for they, one second? This is like the biggest bullshit lie ever. I mean, that people were had to sail off and thought they were going to fall off the edge of the earth. I, I just don't I just don't think this argument makes any sense. I think that um, it's an apologetic game that he's playing where he says something that you know everyone in the seats can pretty much agree with. like, okay, yes, the truth is the earth has always been round and it, it was never flat. But at one time people thought the truth was that the earth was flat. And his point is that truth didn't change. Now it's interesting not to go down the, not to go down the Schrodinger's cat 
uh, road. But uh, who knows? Maybe the Earth was flat, and then we discovered it was round. It became round, just like yeah. the cat. The cat is both in the box and outside of the box. But that's uh, very far afield, so I won't go down that road. But I think it's an apologetic game that he's playing, where he gets everybody on his side by making a point that's that's true, making a point that everyone can agree with. But what I did not like about what he did is then he starts talking about, well, how did we discover that the Earth was round? Yeah. And the way that he describes it is not accurate. The yeah. way that the, I thought he was going to say science. Yeah. Uh, but no, you know, he starts talking about testimony and how yeah. the, sh the ship's going over. And we know exactly Long why. We didn't fall off the edge of the earth. Right. We're still here. I mean. It... Right. And that's, and, um, and I know exactly why he's talking about testimony because he's going to relate that to the Bible and say testimony is like the, the, um, the testimony that we have from the Bible is the strongest evidence. But actually, no. Um, what, what people now know is that um, testimony is one of the weakest forms of evidence because memory um, is one of the most unreliable uh, things we can count on. Like it, this is like Andrew Tate said the same thing about how he knew the world was round. Well, he went up in a plane, I think, and saw it. Like it's like he had to experience it in order to believe that the. It, it's not a belief that the Earth is round. The understanding truth in this way is problematic, and understanding this method of getting to knowledge is problematic. Right, because um, the best way to get the best approximation of truth comes from the scientific method, which is exactly how humanity arrived at the conclusion that the earth was indeed round. Um, and like, he doesn't talk about Galileo or Copernicus or anything like that, or the mathematics, like you said, like the ancient mathematics that um, proved that the earth was round. He, he goes to uh, testimony, which is really not how humanity arrived at it, but it serves his purpose. And again, like he's not a historian. Um, you know, you guys are going to get sick of me saying this because I think it's one of the, the best points to be made. We're all listening to Josh McDowell, who's a minister. He's a pastor. He's not a historian. He's not a journalist. Um, he's a pastor, and he's trying to persuade people to believe in the religion of Christianity. Um, and he's been extremely persuasive, especially to people who already believe. And um, we're trying to kind of give it a lot of scrutiny from a more um, historical uh, perspective and what scholars have to say about it, and it's it's so far it's not holding up. But, yeah, but you can be overly critical. But this guy also has you know three hundred million books out there, um, you know, uh, putting this argument out. So I think like he's opened himself up to be like ruthlessly criticized. Yeah, and you can see how he's crafting this narrative. This is not the way you know academia would uh, would explain something. He he's this is a sermon. This is a this is a polemic. It's to persuade you of something, but um, but again, like again, I'm just going to keep harping on this. This is not the way um, historians come to conclusions. The first question was this: Is what we have today called the Bible? And I'll look at only the New Testament today. Is what we have in the New Testament what was written down two thousand years ago? I think that's an honest question. Or has it been changed? Like a lot of people say, and usually well documented, oh, it's been changed, what people didn't like, they took out, what they did like, they put in, and it just changed down through the years. So he kind of gets into it later, but I just want to preface this with like a really quick observation. So the first question for any historical document is not, 
for its accuracy is not whether we have the original copy of the document, whether we have the original, what the original said. The first question is, who wrote this document? Did they have a agenda that would cloud their historical objectivity? Is How close is it to the events? You know, did this person actually see the events that it's talking about? Um, do they show a knowledge of what they're talking about, like the geography of the area? So there's a bunch of questions you would ask about the historical validity of a document before you would even get to the point of where you would say, let me compare the early copies to see if the documents that we have match up to the original documents. Now, the documents we have could match up to the original documents and still not be historically accurate. So that's, I think, it's just like a really important distinction to make. To start with, well, the first question of historical accuracy is whether what we have of Homer's Iliad is the original Iliad doesn't make the Iliad a historically accurate document. Like the question is whether that's just the original document. And then right. there's a different question of whether that original document is historically accurate. Right. And I'm just going to reiterate what I said earlier that here we have Josh McDowell up there, a minister, not a historian, telling this crowd of people and, and in his book, um, you know, how history works and it's and how, you know, to take manuscript evidence. And it's interesting that historians don't agree with him. So we have a non-qualified person up here teaching a room full of people. And like we said, this has been, you know, published you know, in millions of copies all over the world for 50 years now. And Christians use this um, more than any other book other than the Bible, it seems like to me, um, to defend their faith. And the guy's totally unqualified to be instructing us all on how history works. So that's just my, like, personal pet peeve here. Literature of antiquity was written on material that would perish. Much of the New Testament manuscript, like a lot of other literature of antiquity, was written on, it's similar to this here. It's called papyrus. So one thing that I just wanted to talk about really briefly um, is there is a theory that I think is fascinating about the authorship of the early Gospels or the literary origins of the, of the Gospels. And it has to do with the production of creating these documents and the ability to procure things like papyrus and uh, ink to write, things that wouldn't necessarily be um, accessible to poor peasant fishermen in Galilee. One of the things this theory um, like presupposes is that these Gospels were created by a Greco-cultural elite. So someone like Paul, we hear in the in the New Testament that he was a Roman citizen. That may or may not be true, um, but you know, um, spoke Greek, wrote Greek really well, was well educated, could read or write. All of those things would set him apart from the large majority of the population um, that were you know the actual uh, disciples of Jesus in his ministry. Um, and so part of the the reason this speculation is interesting is because it really casts historical doubt on even the earliest Gospels. Part of this view says that we should look at them in the way that all the um, literature of uh, the cultural elite was were produced at that time, which was like to be distributed amongst themselves and also in a very competitive nature. And so we can see that in the Gospels too. Like you have 
the earliest gospel, Mark. By the time Matthew and Luke, you know, we're just calling them by these names, and maybe we'll break down in, in a few, like, why that's problematic as well. But if these people um, that wrote the Gospels are passing these back and forth and trying to outdo themselves, well, then Luke's whole preface about, uh, I've read all these other Gospels, but I'm going to give the real account, it makes sense in that context. So I think that it's a totally different way to reconceptualize the production of the Gospels that makes a lot of sense. I mean, again, like just to be able to produce and, and copy these documents assumes a certain amount of wealth and a certain sort of um, place in society. And that also, like, again, like I said, cast doubt on these people being the initial disciples of the Gospels. Right, because the original disciples of Jesus would have been unschooled, illiterate, you know, fishermen and labor, day laborers. They wouldn't be highly literate, um, Greek-speaking people who... Uh, would have the capability of even uh, writing this way. In our day, it's hard to imagine that because children are educated at a young age. Most people have the ability to write um, to one level or another. But in uh, the New Testament era, no. Um, the majority of people could not read and write and definitely could not compose um, you know, a beautiful text like the Gospel of John or um, even something simpler like the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, and I mean, even if you want to just take the biblical evidence, it says in Acts, I think, that the uh, disciples were unlettered. So, I mean, it says in the, in the Bible even that they couldn't read or write. So. Right. There's many ways to determine the very age of a manuscript. One, uh, probably the best way is the type of material that it's written on and, and its age. For example, if it's written on parchment or uh, pottery or the skin of animals or from papyrus, which I already described. In studying that material, you can pretty well determine uh, within a few years of when that manuscript uh, was done, or that portion of the manuscript. Another way is by the division of the text. See, a lot of people don't realize that originally the text was not divided the way that we have it in the Bible today. They, over the years, they would divide the text or even begin or end the verse at a different place. And so by studying the division of the text, you can narrow it down to a few years when a manuscript uh, was done. And then have you ever picked up an old book and you're looking at the beginning and maybe the first letter is kind of ornate or artistic and or there'll be a picture there, uh, a drawing, a graphic. And by studying those in the manuscripts, they did the same thing. And by studying those, you can pretty well determine uh, in a close proximity the years in which a manuscript was done. Again, he, you know, he's talking to uh, a layman audience and he's giving, he's trying to give very basic historical tools that historians use. I mean, definitely the type of a material that a document was written on, it means something. It's the same thing in pottery where you can pretty accurately date pottery by the style or the or the materials used in it. It's the same thing with any sort of writing. And then when he talks about the decorative letters, and that's true. However, in the earliest manuscripts, uh, when you go back to the um, to the Greek manuscripts, that that wasn't there at all. And the same thing as far as like uh, the separation of verses. So if he, yeah, he's talk if you're talking about dating medieval documents, that's absolutely true. But it's actually not very relevant at all to the ultimate questions that um, are going to come to play when it when we're talking about the earliest manuscripts in Greek. 
Yeah, it's actually kind of frustrating because it's like going to be a case where he's going to weigh the evidence. And if he's including all those uh, documents as like original autographs, that's or, you know, early autographs, that's not early at all. Yeah. Um, And that's a spoiler alert because he does. He basically starts to make the claim that because we have so many manuscripts in Christian history, that that somehow is evidence um, of the truth of the claims of the Bible, and um, which is absurd. But and uh, I think like the reality is that most of the manuscripts that we have are from that era. Like so, oh, absolutely. I mean, we do have a we. We'll get into it more when we talk about the actual numbers. I just wanted to bring up two things really quickly. Um, so the one thing that he doesn't bring up as far as dating is radiocarbon dating, and that probably fits into a larger narrative about uh, evangelical Christianity that we won't get into because I don't think they they like radiocarbon dating when it comes to other things that are dated that way. And then I just think like with the paleographical dating, um, I think he's overselling it a little bit as far as the accuracy in date range. I mean. Um, you know, this is from Wikipedia, but it's based on, you know, the, the sources are, are from good sources and, um, you know, the date range is, is debatable amongst scholars. Um, you know, even radiocarbon could be between 10 and a hundred years in the dating and paleograph could be a range of 25 to 125 years. So he can make a claim that paleography claims that this document is 70, you know, from 80, 75, for example. But really, that could be a range of 125 years after that. Right. Like that dating is just not that accurate. So I think he's overselling the uh, accuracy. Yeah. And I'll just reiterate what I've been saying all along. Like, he, again, he's not a historian. If you are interested in learning about the dating methods and, and how they date manuscripts and biblical manuscripts, there's a lot of really good information out there. Like, don't listen to me and Ben. Don't listen to Josh McDowell. There's, there's actual historians that do this for a living and are really good at it. I just don't think people should be going to Josh McDowell to, uh, to find this information. Now, one thing that I've learned over the years, the more I compare the scriptures with other literature of antiquity, the greater appreciation I have of the scriptures in comparison. For example, with Pliny the Younger, known as Plinius Segundus, from the time he wrote to the closest manuscript, everything else rotted away and lost, 750 years. With Caesar, wrote his Gallic Wars in the first century. From the time Caesar wrote to the closest manuscript, a thousand years from the time he wrote. With Plato, from the time he wrote the closest manuscript, a thousand two hundred years. Aristotle wrote his poetics around 343 B.C. The closest manuscript is 1100 A.D., a thousand four hundred years later. Everything in between has been lost. Sophocles, a thousand four hundred years. Euripides, fifteen hundred years. But when it comes to the New Testament, just the New Testament, we now go back within about 50 to 70 to 75 years. And now with some of the new discoveries, they're saying even taking it all the way back to the 50s and the early 60s, which would be within 20 to 30, 35 years. I don't know, John, what discoveries did they make that's uh, 20 years after... uh... In, in yeah, I was going to ask you the same thing. Um, again, what papyrus? Give me the, uh, you know, give me the evidence. You're all about evidence, evidence that demands a verdict, and then you just make this claim. He should say what fragment was found, um, and which scholars date it, to what time. But he doesn't give any of that. 
Yeah, I mean, all I know is that the Papyrus P-52 maybe as early as the first half of the second century. Right. So that would be like 150. So, see, I mean, that's another thing that he's going to do. And this is a spoiler alert um, if you want to skip ahead. Um, But he's going to give the most charitable dating of all of these documents, too. So he's going to tell you if it's, you know, a date range of 40 years to 140 years, he's going to tell you 40 years. And that's just really intellectually dishonest like we don't know that it's that close the other thing i wanted to say is all of those other documents that he's talking about are from before the uh common era so we're not going to have close copies of them for the same reason he talked about before papyrus the writing materials they disintegrate so it's a stupid standard to say I mean, yeah, you can say that we can have questions about the, the, the document we have, whether it's the original, the same thing as the original document. That's fair when it comes to Pliny the Younger or uh, Aristotle or, you know, that's a, that's a fair question to ask. But to say that, oh, our earliest copy is a thousand years. Well, th- those were written a long time ago. Those were written hundreds of years before the New Testament. So it's sort of a weird argument in my mind to make. Of course, we're going to have less copies of those. Yeah. Um, or of course that we're going to have copies that are further away. They had those events are further in the past. Those do- those are older documents. Well, there's there's some really important distinctions to make here. First of all, nobody is saying that Plato is inerrant. No one is saying that Plato and Socrates are perfect, and Pliny the Younger is perfect. In fact, there are scholars on all of those people, and yeah, they question um, the legitimacy all the time. I mean, they'll say, we don't know if this was original. That's like a huge um, source of study in academia for all of those things, trying to, trying to understand um, you know, if it's original or if it was not original. And they're completely okay in doubting it in those subjects. But what do you know? You're not allowed to doubt the Bible. The Bible is inerrant. And Josh McDowell will not let you in academia say, I don't think this was original, or I don't think this is accurate, or I don't think this is true. But in academia, you're allowed to do that for all those other subjects. So yeah, it's completely fine to say, um, you know, we, we don't know how accurate this is or that is. And that's, that's a, something that is uh, totally open for study. Um, the other thing I would say is, by his logic, I would think he should be a Mormon, because we have um, extremely close. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you're talking about like within a year, it was verified um, that that the Book of Mormon was written um, or fa- or discovered if you were a Mormon. So uh, you know, from from the first copies to the original, you have it within like a year. So yeah, uh, or a Muslim, because I'm sure that there's uh, you know, uh, Islam was 500 years after Christianity, and I'm sure we have copies closer to the original time that the documents were written because they're not as old of a document. It's just the way that it goes. Yeah, Ben, to your point, um, the oldest copy of the Quran actually dates back to 1,500 years ago and likely overlaps with the life of Muhammad. So, um, yeah, um, if Josh McDowell is going to use this criteria, he should probably become a Muslim. And it does help when it's a religious document that everyone's copying constantly. Right. Papyri Bodmer. Now, why is it called papyrus? It's written on papyrus. The Papyri Bodmer II, right around 155 A.D. And then you have the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Vaticanus, Codex Alexandrus. So they sound like diseases. Well, these are titles given to some complete copies of the New Testament. 
Just time-wise, there is more evidence in the manuscripts, time-wise, for the New Testament than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. So, the second question, the first... just a real quick comment. So the Codex Sinaiticus is the earliest complete copy of the New Testament, and it dates from the 4th century. Right. That's the first complete New Testament that we have. And um, the first complete copy of single New Testament books are all from the 200s. Yeah, I mean, so I was going to say. You know, when you're talking about, oh, we have a document that's from, uh, you know, 40 years, we have the John that maybe, you know, 40 years after John wrote, I mean, the document is the size of a quarter. Right. So, or a, or a stamp. So, I mean, we have to keep perspective. This is not a complete copy of John that we have. We have a, a very small uh, a part of a page. Right. And, I mean, it, it's hard for me not to want to jump into these arguments because um, there's a reason that um, churches throughout history have been debating very key points of theology. And a lot of it is because we're unsure of what the original author said. Um, I mean, that's, I'm not making that up. All you have to do is look at any, um, you know, church documents or, uh, or a statement of faith, and you can see where all these um, differences are. And a lot of them come down to, like, we don't really know what the author said or what the author meant. Um, and we, in the manuscript tradition that we do have, we see edits and alterations and additions. And um, again, if you're claiming that the Bible is inerrant and we need to get all of our um, you know, teachings from, for life and our salvation based on this book. I think it's pretty important to find out what these teachings say. And you know what? We have no access to it. We just can't do it because, um, because of the diversity in the manuscript tradition. And you don't have to take our word for it. You can even look in your own Bible. All you have to do is follow the footnotes. I remember the first time I became aware of this, I looked at the Gospel of Mark and the first footnote I came to was, it said, uh, Jesus, the Son of God. There was a footnote, and I went down, and it said, Son of God was not in earliest and best manuscripts. So, you know, sometimes it is important stuff, too, that is a uh, textual variant. Yeah, Ben, another way to say all of this is that Josh McDowell's just not a historian, and he's not doing good history here. This is a polemic, like we've said. He's trying to persuade you of something. Um, mostly trying to bolster the faith of people who already believe um, the points that he's making. So let's wrap it up here for now, but stay with us next time as we delve deeper into Josh McDowell's arguments. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at Skeptics Bible Project at gmail.com.